We try to go to the library when it's too hot. We try to go to the library. Or sometimes we try to go to the water park so we can play with the water and all that. Try to stay cool because sometimes it's too hot when we're outside. When you go home, like you can have some migraine headache and all that. So we try to avoid that. Yes, because with their development, the library is good, but the outside plane is a lot more for their development as well. So when it gets too hot, I don't think they can function well. Here, it's a little hotter. The weather, I think it isn't easy being outside, right? Today is a perfect day to work, right? No one really wants to work in the heat, but necessity makes it so that we have to work. What's important is health. I think that I'm fit enough to endure it. My immune system more than the whole body. Many people faint or have body pains, but it depends on the person. It was tough. It was tough because the heat increased too much. You have to drink a lot of water. It's the only option that there is. Drink a lot of water. It's very hot, but one has to endure it because there's no other choice. These little trees help a lot because they provide good shade. I think that here in D.C. the heat is suffocating. The heat is really strong, but you have to work. There is no other choice. You have to work. Hi, my name is Marcelo Jauregui Volpe, and this is The Climate Divide, a new podcast from Hola Cultura, supported by Spotlight DC and the Fund for Investigative Journalism. What you just heard are local interviews we did with nannies around the DC area and day laborers waiting for work in the asphalt parking lot outside the Home Depot in Ward 5, one of the hottest areas of the city this time of year. As we know, young children, like the ones cared for by the nannies, are particularly vulnerable to heat. DC was tragically reminded of this reality on Tuesday, August 9th, when a three-month-old boy died after accidentally being left in a car for up to an hour, according to DC Deputy Mayor for Public Safety and Justice, Christopher Geldard. The 9th was a scorcher in the district, with the heat index reaching 107 degrees, according to some measurements. Unfortunately, this is not an infrequent occurrence. And every year there are stories like this one around the United States. The Washington Post reported that there is an investigation underway on the possible missteps made during the emergency response that delayed the dispatching of paramedics. Though at the end of the day, this incident is another reminder of how imperative it is to always be vigilant of younger children during hot summer days. Day laborers, who spend a lot of time outside under the hot sun, are also among the groups most in danger of heat stroke or related illnesses, which if untreated can result in serious consequences, even death. So there's an effect of uh, temperature on cognitive function. Other studies are also looking at things like suicide statistics. So in Mexico and in the U.S., there is a clear trend that higher temperatures are associated to more suicides. So you could think of both those two pathways, the one that affects the mind and the other through the loss of economic opportunities. That was Jose Guillermo Cedeño Lauren, an assistant professor at the Rutgers School of Public Health, who conducted an observational study of the impact he can have on the cognitive function of young adults during a heat wave. As we discussed in last week's episode, 
Even healthy young people who don't spend a lot of time outdoors can have their cognitive function impaired by heat exposure. This can be a particular problem when they are learning in a hot classroom. It was distracting. I can vividly remember being in my film class and we were watching a film. And my teacher, he had brought in three fans, two from home and then one he bought on the way to school. And we were trying to battle with the sound of the room of the film that we were analyzing and how many fans we had on. And then also it was very uncomfortable because you come inside the school from the heat just getting there and then you'd go inside the building and you'd still be sweating you still be drinking water all the time and i remember i think a friend of mine had really bad migraines that week as well cuz she's very sensitive to heat change so it was just not a great time people came dressed differently just to prepare for not having ac and it was hard to focus as well cuz you're just constantly uncomfortable and feeling such heat that it's really hard to learn in those conditions. It's not just a matter of discomfort, it's also a matter of learning and to me it especially highlights as a district, as a nation, we're really grappling with inequity in our educational system. That was Elizabeth Corinth, the LSAT chair for School Within School at Goding Elementary School, as well as Ola Cultura intern Talia Jackson a student at Duke Ellington School of the Arts. Both schools' AC units had stopped working back in late spring, while temperatures outside were high. But they weren't the only ones. We investigated, and what we learned was that broken air conditioning systems are a perennial problem in DC, with outages ranging from a few hours to a few days or more. Concerned parents, teachers, and administrators have even resorted to reaching out to district leaders via social media to help fix broken HVAC units. This week, we are looking at what DC government is doing to get the public schools ready to make sure students don't have to return to hot classrooms when school starts on August 29th. Earlier this summer, the DC Council passed the Back to School Safely Emergency Act of 2022, which would require the Department of General Services or DGS in consultation with DC public schools to report on the condition of all HVAC systems by school by August 19th, 2022. We spoke with council member Janice Lewis George. She represents Ward 4 and introduced the bill along with council chairman Phil Mendelson. It passed the council unanimously. I grew up in DC public schools, so it's been a problem since I was a student. I would say I would go back to when I was a student at Rudolph Elementary in 1998 and the summer the air wasn't working and in the fall and in winter sometimes we would have heating issues. So it is not a new issue to me. I've been experiencing it since I was young. I remember when we had that same issue happen. I went to deal junior high school at the time. the PTA put in and bought air conditioners for each classroom which is something that the PTA at Deal can afford to do but maybe not the PTA at Rudolph can do. So there was always an inequity gap there as well when it came to that. But since I've been in this position as council member, HVAC issues have really come to me from day one on the job because people talked about these issues forever, but when we started returning back to school during COVID, people were really upset because they were like, "Wait a minute, we've all been doing virtual learning. Why hasn't anybody been fixing the schools while we've been virtual?" Which is a fair question of, you know, there was a lot of time where buildings were empty and things could have gotten done. But the biggest issue that started 
working on this legislation would be around two schools and that I would say Whittier was one of the first cases that occurred where we had the system not working and teachers and parents and everyone reaching out saying this is a huge issue. And then we started in the beginning of the school year, we did a back to school tour for schools. And we went to every school and we started to see a pattern specifically with the HVAC systems where we had so many classrooms and wings of hallways where the air was not working. And some classrooms had spot coolers to sort of support that, but the spot coolers were really loud. And so made it really difficult for teachers to even still teach during that loud noise. And then some classrooms didn't even have the spot coolers. And then in some instances, the spot coolers were just not enough to keep the classrooms cool. And so I was very alarmed because we had libraries with no air, areas where students will be, we know will congregate, cafeterias without air. I mean, it was becoming a pattern in all my schools. And I'm like, wait a minute, why is this an issue? And then the response was, oh, well, we're missing a part. We're waiting on a part. And I was like, and how long has this part been missing? Or how long have you been waiting on? And it seems to just be really unclear regarding those things. And the teachers were getting ready in the heat. They were having to put their classrooms together. It was hot, it was sweaty. I mean, we could track the classroom. So class said 80 degrees, 85 degrees. No one should be working in those conditions. And certainly our students won't be able to learn in those conditions. We asked council member Lewis George what the best case scenario would be for HVAC systems to be fixed before school starts. You know, there used to be this thing called a blitz. I'm sure they still say it, but it was like, oh, summer blitz, where they would say, this is when we're going to fix all of the issues. And the blitz usually was like a week before school. So a part of this best case scenario is contractors and crews are out there working right now and not waiting for a blitz, a week of doing the work, but that it's spanning over time. So best case scenario is that's happening. And on day one, you know, all of our schools have functioning air and adequate HVAC systems. We still very much have to face the realities of COVID. And so wanting to make sure we still have air filters, functional air filters still being in every classroom is also a part of what we hope to see on day one, making sure we have the HEPA filters that are necessary to continue to make sure we're filtrating air the way that, that it should be done. It means all of our school buildings will be adequately secure for our safety concerns go. It means that all of the teachers and staff will be onboarded and we won't be waiting for clearance processes to come through. But we have teachers who can go into school, prepare their classrooms for school, and then also be able to start on day one, which was a huge issue last year. And also we have adequate technology because we had teachers who were still waiting for their computers weeks into the school year. And then they had to get new computers, update everything. It was a mess. Also adequate technology for all of our teachers and all of our students on day one. And they're not having to wait for back orders to come in for them to start their school year. So that's best case scenario, I think. You know, I don't run DCPS or DGS, so I really can't guarantee that every school will be ready to go come the first day of school. But what I'm doing as council member with my colleagues is adding transparency and public pressure and oversight to push for the work to happen in time. This is The Climate Divide, a new podcast from Hola Cultura, supported by Spotlight DC and the Fund for Investigative Journalism. This podcast has also been made available to listeners of WAMU 88.5, NPR's Consider This Podcast, and WTOP Radio. In a letter from Mayor Muriel Bowser to Chairman Mendelssohn via email on July 12th, she stated the concern she had with the bill, saying it is not aligned with existing operational standards utilized by DGS. 
and that the bill would unfortunately duplicate work and cause unnecessary reporting and tracking issues. The mayor ultimately declined to sign the bill, but since it passed the council unanimously, it still became law. We reached out several times to DGS, but they did not follow up on our request for comment. I think that ever since coming out of the time when the city was bankrupt, that the previous mayors have invested in our schools, and the schools are far more robust and better equipped for managing hot and cold. And we have probably more rec centers per capita than almost any city in the country. We have public infrastructure, and it's now that the city's had more funds over the past 10, 20 years, they're managed to maintain at a much higher rate than they used to be. And I believe that the city's more equipped. We know that in the next 25, 30 years, we're going to have the same climate as, say, Nashville. And Nashville is, the, you know, it's a hotter city for longer periods of time. And luckily, we have a lot of buildings. Most of our buildings are air conditioned. We're not, you know, the upper Midwest, where they're having heat waves and there's just no air conditioning. We're areas of Europe where there's just not air conditioning. Most of D.C. is air conditioned. And if your home is not air conditioned, you can generally get within walking distance to an air conditioned place, generally going to be either a library, a rec center or a school. And, you know, we're, we're fortunate that way. But it also means that we're going to have a higher energy load and we're going to have to keep it all in good shape because we're getting hotter for longer periods of time. That was Tommy Wells the director of the Department of Energy and Environment, and also a former school board member and former D.C. council member. I know that when I was on the D.C. school board, and that was, you know, 16 years ago, I was on the school board for about six years, and the um, infrastructure had, was failing. That, you know, from the boilers not being ready, with windows that the wind would blow out, and air conditioning off and down. We have come light years forward in doing that to where it's more, when one school or two schools experience this, it's a big deal. Where it used to be, we would attend 20 schools where the heat or the cooling wasn't working or more, you know, could even be actually 30 schools. So we've come a long way. And we're also a city that is far better financially than we've ever been before. And so there's no excuse. So when the council, you know, sees that there's local dollars and maintenance repair, they've thought over time, well, you know what? I don't know if they're going to spend all this. And if you want to do a new initiative, that's where you go. You find local dollars for maintenance repair, and then we pay for it. So a lot of the repairs and new building that we did to get the buildings back to where they need to be, you have to provide maintenance and repair and you have to provide the, the funds to do it. And so at times, that's the place where funding is cut. It's always been true for railroads and everywhere else that eventually catches up with you. There's not a shortage of funds. It's just, are they allocated to this purpose? And so I think that the Department of General Services which is responsible for keeping all of our public buildings, including schools, operational, I think they've generally been underfunded. And generally because that's where a lot of your leaders or folks go to find funding to do something else. And that's because those are local dollars. They're not dollars like federal dollars that come in. They're not dedicated. The dollars that you use for new initiatives come from, you know, maintenance repair dollars, the local dollars. 
schools still need to be prepared and ready to go now. So I will begin my school tours. I will be beginning the same thing I did last year, which is going through all of my schools with TGS and DCPS staff. But most of our reports are due by August 19th. So that still gives them time. But I'll get a sense of if they're working towards getting these things complete when I go on my school tours. And I know some of the other council members are doing school tours after me. I think Councilmember Che will be doing it for Ward 3 and Councilmember Pencil will be doing Ward 2. So in addition to these requirements and the reports being due, we'll also sort of see in real time how much progress is actually being made. In regards to the bill, Talia and Elizabeth shared what they thought about the new legislation. I think more often than not, DCPS kind of just sees a problem and ignores it until it festers and it explodes. I've seen it happen so many times before. So just keeping up to date on building maintenance is such a good idea. And so I think for safety reasons, especially with the girl fainting in my class and all these water bottles having to be passed out, just health issues for a wide range of students, I think it's a good idea. That seems nice to have it be proactive, to be proactively looking at what are the potential issues so that we don't get in a situation where the problem is upon us and we don't even know what the needs are. So that seems to me very forward thinking to be doing that as we go into the school year to really allow for an assessment of where the needs are. And ideally, that would then be acted upon with addressing and prioritizing the areas of highest need. And I would love to see that being publicly shared. One thing that I have been frustrated with on some levels over the past year is the lack of transparency in terms of what issues schools across the board are facing. I think one big challenge with DC schools is it's really hard to get a handle on who has jurisdiction, who is in charge, who to hold accountable. Like as an LSAT chair, that's something I've tried to wrap my brain around and don't, you know, we've got Aussie, we've got the mayor, we've got DGS, we've got the council, we've got all these different people who seem like maybe they should have some jurisdiction, oversight, accountability. But when you're faced in the moment with a specific issue, like the HVAC, then you don't know who to turn to first. You don't know who's supposed to be on top of this. Who is at the top level? Do I talk to the chancellor? Do I talk to the mayor? Do I reach out to my ward council member? You don't know where to go. And so that makes it really difficult to enact change and to go beyond the present moment and to say, okay, what is the bigger picture? How do we address this in the bigger picture? Like, who do we even go to for advocacy, go to to talk to, ask questions of? So I think that's something I would like to see and think is necessary in order to really make systemic positive change in the DC school system is to really have clarity around what is the chain of command, who's responsible for what, and make that information clearly available to LSATs, to schools, to community members, so that when there is an issue, we know like, okay, who's responsible for this? Who do we need to go to? And who is not doing what they need to be doing if we're seeing a problem in this issue? The bill will expire on October 25th, 2022. But Councilmember Lewis George shared how there's still more to be done long-term in order to prevent DC students from being exposed to long periods in hot classrooms. So a few things. One, this is obviously an emergency. The plan is to make this permanent. 
we wanted to work on this as quickly as we possibly could and, and have it in effect for this school year. Um, but we are working on making this permanent legislation moving forward as a way to continue to be and ensure, you know, give real meat to our oversight here. So the permanent is coming soon and I'm going to look forward to my colleagues supporting it. And then we're going to intro this in the fall and we're going to hope for a public hearing to happen as soon as possible on it. So the other piece is I have been working on a Green New Deal for schools. And so that is something we're working on trying to roll out in the fall or early January, but hopefully fingers crossed for the fall where we talk about ways to make all of our schools energy efficient. We've had some great examples. The new John Lewis Elementary School is one of the top in LED designs and has a number of systems in place from water filtration to solar panels to energy efficient HVAC systems. And there's more that has to be added to it, right? Because it's not just those pieces, but like community gardens when we talk about sustainability, composting, we talk about teaching kids how to compost and the impact composting can have. Not without giving too much away of what's going to be included in that. I've been working on this really hard, actually getting feedback from students. The students at McFarland for two years in a row have done the climate symposium and they have added sort of pieces they want to see in a Green New Deal for schools. And we want to make sure we incorporate their ideas into it as well. I love it because they have bold visions too. So we're going to try to include those in and, and that will take some time, but all of our schools should be retrofitted and moving forward and addressing climate change. And so that's the other piece of legislation that I'm working on to address this issue as well. In addition to making the new legislation permanent, Councilmember Lewis George also plans to include DC's charter schools. The plan is for the permanent legislation to include our charters. I think when we did the emergency legislation, it was hard to do this in a short time period because they are all separate LEAs, whereas DCPS is under one LEA. And so they're on notice now with this emergency that they're going to need the adequate amount of staff assignments to be able to answer this call. A part of this is also working on something where we have a system where we can also centralize their information because DCPS information is centralized with DGS and DCPS, but they do it one by one. And so working with our charter partners to creating a centralized list to make this happen. So there's work to be done on centralizing the charter LEAs who are separate entities, but also still operate within our community and ecosystem. And I couldn't agree more that our public charter school students and our DCPS students and families deserve to all go back to safe classrooms and to know their schools are safe. And those are my constituents too. So we're doing the work now so they know what they're going to need. And we sort of won't have any excuses that this can't be implemented in all of our LEAs. When we spoke with assistant professor Sedeño Lauren, he discussed how students living without air conditioning performed worse on cognitive function tests compared to students who were similar in most ways, except their living quarters were air conditioned. So long story short is that we found that the group without AC had a very significant, substantial decrease in their cognitive function in comparison to the people that have the air condition. So think about how we normally present these findings. And in many cases, there's associations that happen because of just the circumstances. And we cannot say that factor A is causing consequence B. But in this case, the study design, they were the same group of students the day before the heat wave, and they were, in most of their personal factors, the same students the day after the heat. So the only real difference in this natural intervention was the presence of air conditioning. 
Yet a body of literature has shown how there seems to be a long-term effect. I wouldn't say physiological effect that would permanently hinder your cognitive abilities, but if this is an exposure that repeats itself, then the consequences might be in educational. So what other people have found is that the students in schools that don't have AC tend to do worse in standardized tests or tend to have higher rates of absenteeism. And this becomes a series of long-term effects, especially in their economic opportunity. So one of these studies found that, for example, those students that took a standardized test in a day where outdoor temperatures were higher than 90 were like 12% more likely to fail that exam, the regents exam in the state of New York. So that have long-term consequences to their economic life. So everything points out to be acute effects, but with long-term consequences. After learning how heat can diminish cognitive function, we asked Councilmember Lewis George if she was concerned about how chronic HVAC problems in D.C. schools could be setting students back from peak academic performances and learning, especially when these problems take place year after year. When I talk about environmental justice, the intersection with how climate change, systemic racism, and the systems that in place all interact, this is one of those areas where it's absolutely true. And we see those impacts show up. And that's why this is a critical issue. It's not sort of, let's wait and get it done. It's every day that we don't, we're not doing our part around this. We are risking the lives of our children and their cognitive abilities. That's also why I did a Green New Deal for lead pipe replacement because, you know, studies show similarly, like if kids are exposed to lead water in early ages, the impact is five times that of adults. And again, it contributes to cognitive disabilities and issues. So here you have these issues with HVAC and heat, you have lead water, you have all of these things working in and showing themselves and contributing to the ways in which systemic racism shows up in health disparities. And I think that's why this is so important and another reason why we wanted to bring this to a forefront. But yes, I am aware of this, which is why this is just so critical for us to address. I do think more people need to be made aware of this and the ways in which we are sort of not doing our part to address it, but also to shine light. Next week, We'll examine solutions to the summer's rising heat and what can be done to bring down temperatures, indoors and out. The Climate Divide is edited by me, Claudia Peralta Torres, and Jose Luis Mendoza. Additional interviews were conducted by Lucia Matamoros, Talia Jackson, Jennifer Alfaro, and Barbara Ron Giron. Christine McDonald is the series editor and executive director of Hola Cultura. This project is supported by Spotlight DC the Capital City Fund for Investigative Journalism, and the Fund for Investigative Journalism.